Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, if you need a Bible, the folks walking down the aisles will give you one. Luke chapter 2. We're going to take a look at a very interesting time in Jesus' life. Uh, Luke is the only one to cover it. Uh, it's the small snapshot of his childhood. We don't know a lot about it. But Luke gives us uh, the most important detail, and it's pretty fascinating. It's uh, one of those passages that just really blessed me as a parent, and I pray it does the same for you. And if you're a young person, I pray it inspires you and encourages you. <clears throat> Before we get into the reading, I want to put it into context uh, in, in relation to the rest of our study through the book of Luke. Um, and we, we took a look at the Christmas story um, as it was read on Christmas Eve, and then uh, we took a look at a number of other things, and then uh, obviously we did the study on, uh, on last Sunday on Simeon and Anna. Actually, that was Christmas Eve service. We did Simeon and Anna. Um, but here we see this picture of, uh, of Jesus uh, going to the temple, and I want to, as I said, set the context, because uh, we know that he was born in Bethlehem, but he was actually a Nazarene, and the whole purpose of that uh, occurs in Luke chapter 2 when it said it came to pass, uh, chapter 2 verse 1 says, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, the Roman world. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, that's where he was living, but he goes back to his ancestral home into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, house of bread. Uh, so he goes back to his ancestral home and, and there we find that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, and then you go to Matthew chapter two, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod the king, these wise men came from the east, uh, they saw the star and they descended and we studied and took a look at their lives. Um, and then when they arrived there, an angel of the Lord later in the passage uh, uh, appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So uh, they, they come out of Nazareth. They go into Bethlehem, which is their ancestral home. Just to give you an idea, uh, Michelle and I have raised our family here in Thousand Oaks. I've been here since 2001, but I was born and raised in Coronado, California, um, but this is, this is my home. That is my ancestral birthplace. That's where I'd have to go to be registered if we were in Roman times. But this is my home as Nazareth was the home for, for Jesus' family. But he was born in Bethlehem. And that was to fulfill a prophecy that the child would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be called a Nazarene, which is fascinating. We look at all what we call messianic prophecies. Things said of Christ in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New uh, there's, there's almost a thousand of them, if not more. And someone did a statistical, Pasadena College did a, a statistical uh, assessment. If just eight of those messianic prophecies were fulfilled by one person, the, the quantitative view of that, uh, the odds of it would be equal to covering the entire state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars, painting one of them red, throwing it somewhere in the state of Texas, parachuting a blind man out, 
to wander the state, and as he reached down to pick up one silver dollar, it would be that red one. That's for eight of the hundreds of prophecies in relation to Jesus. How many people in the history of the world were born in Bethlehem? How many people can come from the lineage of David as Jesus did through his father Joseph and his mother Mary? Um, And and how many could be called a Nazarene? And, And you start to apply all of these and you see it. And so they, they flee. Uh, now Jesus is no longer a baby. He's now older, as we saw with the wise men. Uh, and now they're staying in a house. And so they came to see, them and see Mary and Joseph and the, and the young baby or the young boy, uh, these wise men did. And then all of a sudden an angel appears and they flee and go into Egypt. How'd they get to Egypt? Where'd they get the money for it? Well, don't forget that the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they, they had that money to be able to travel to Egypt. And when they did this, Herod began to kill all of the children, uh, two years of age and under, the male children. So Jesus' generation has just been systematically wiped out. Um, and all the girls still remain, so he's a catch, because he's like the only guy their age left in the... I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, and, and just to give you an idea, I'm, I was born in 64. I'm the very last year of the baby boom generation. It started in 46, 47 when all the GIs came back from the war and they just wanted to start a new life and they all got married and started having kids and there was this enormous population increase in the United States called the baby boomers and then they had the echo boom uh, where those baby boomers then had kids, not as many, so the, the increase was less. And, and uh, folks have made a fortune on what they call the pig in the python. Uh, when a python swallows a pig, you start to watch this massive thing in its gullet. And then as it starts to pass down through the pig, it starts to get digested and then uh, exits. Uh, and and that's, that's the pig in the python. So really what they're saying is there's a timeline with this baby boom generation that all of a sudden the timeline begins and there's this big lump of all these babies being born. So you want to start with uh, college education and then you go with your starter homes and you have your entry level and then they start to make a little bit of money. So you want to start to build houses that are for the more affluent and then they start to age and so you want to start to invest in healthcare and then they start to age more and so you start to do assisted living facilities and that's where we are now uh, as a council member in the city, a uh, number of the permits that we get are requests for assisted living because there's that, that baby boom generation, the echo boom, are going to need these assisted living facilities. But coming behind them, the population didn't increase. And, uh, and so we have all these folks that are going on social security and, and we don't have younger folks there to keep it going. And so the house of cards is falling apart. But as this is happening and this baby boom generation is passing through the pig and the python, in Jesus' generation, there was no baby boom for the males and there was no echo boom because there were, they, they just didn't have any males. And, uh, and so here he is as a young man um, and, and everyone his age and below are all wiped off the face of the earth in that region of the world. And as, as uh, Herod is killing all these young children, uh, the angel of the Lord says it's safe to go back um, Angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child um, and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Jesus returns from Egypt. We don't know a lot from the age of maybe three to 11. 
And, uh, and the story picks up, and it's fascinating to me, this story, because um, the picture to me is Luke, who was the most prolific writer of the New Testament, he wrote not only the Gospel according to Luke, but also the book of Acts. So as far as the amount of writing, Luke uh, is, is the lead in that. He even surpasses the Apostle Paul who wrote the pastoral epistles, and, and yet Luke is, is more of a prolific writer in relation to the New Testament. Luke wasn't an eyewitness of these accounts, and we studied that a ways back, but he did sit down with eyewitnesses, and he, made, he was a doctor by trade, and so he, was very, he, he spent more time using larger words than any of the gospel writers, and he obviously interviewed Mary. He wanted to know these things, and you can imagine as he's sitting down with John, who was the last living apostle, uh, he was the only one to die of old age, even though they tried to boil him alive, and he ended up his final years on the island of Patmos, wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, John was the youngest of the 12 apostles, uh, and it was interesting that when Jesus was crucified, he was on the cross, and Mary was there, and John was there. He looks at Mary, and he says, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he said, John, take her from here, because I'm, I'm not going to be able to care for my earthly mother. You take care of her. Tradition says that they ended up in Ephesus. I went and visited Ephesus. I saw the houses purported to have been hers. Catholics believe she was translated from there. Uh, Protestants don't hold to that. Uh, but it is a fascinating place as I was up there with my mother who was there with my father who had Alzheimer's. My mom looked and, and my, this is the last trip my dad had taken and Alzheimer's was really starting to take its toll on my dad. My mom looked at this place and where this house of Mary exists in Ephesus is it's up in the hills. It's beautifully wooded. There's a natural spring there. It overlooks the city. And you just think, you know, John, if this is true, you really did right by Jesus. You've taken good care of Mary. And my mother was just very cont- uh, contemplative as she was there and she was taking water out of the cistern there like it was special water, you know, the house of Mary in Ephesus and my mom's Catholic and she likes things like that and she'd bring it back to her friends and it's special and put it on, and, and, anyways, where was I? So, but one of the things that touched me is my mom was real quiet and I walked up to her. I said, mom, what's going on? She said, you know, I'm, I'm real worried about what my future is gonna be like as your father's getting worse and, um, she said, and as I look at this whole place, it, the Lord really does take care of you, doesn't he? I said, yeah, mom. Uh, God took good care of Mary. He's gonna take good care of you. And it was from that point on, my mom kind of had a settled heart. It was, it was a faith experience for her. It was really blessed her. Well, John took good care of Mary, and, uh, and Jesus made sure of that. Um, and so you, you have this familial picture. Jesus never lost sight of that. And now it brings us to this place where of all the occurrences, when, when Luke sat down with Mary and said, hey, you know what, um, Matthew's covered a lot of it, uh, John's covered a lot of it, Mark's covered a lot of it, there's some things that are left out, we don't have really any accounts of Jesus as a child, um, wh- what do you have that I can write down? And as Mary thinks in, in the recesses of her memory, uh, the thing that she brings forward for Luke that he sought fit to put down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit was this story that we're going to pick up at in Luke uh, 2.39. Don't turn there yet. Uh, and, and as she thinks about it, she says, you know, I, I, we have the, the time when we were in Egypt. We have the time when Herod wanted to kill us. We had the time when the wise men came. Uh, we've covered that, Luke. You know, th- there is one significant thing that I really feel that the Holy Spirit is telling me to share with you. And, and Luke's saying, go ahead. I got my pen ready. She said it was when he was 12. Now, fascinating time, 12 years of age, because for us in our culture, we go, oh, junior high years, <laughs> who'd want to cover that? But as, as <laughs> I was, a, I was a, a junior high pastor for a number of years, I always believed that a, a, you'll make a good senior pastor if you can learn how to communicate with junior hires, because this is a critical stage 
um, in life. This is where you're going from your parents' God to your own God. He's either going to become your God or you're going to find another God, small g. This is where you, you, transla- you transition from a child to a man or a child to a woman. This is where you take moral responsibility for your life at the age of 12 and beyond. And we don't teach that in our culture. We've started to come up with different terms like teenagers and, and tweens, in between teen. And, and we, we come up with all kinds of different uh, marketing gimmicks instead of just two categories, child, adult. That's all there is in the Bible. That's all there is in life, child, adult. This is where your parents front load you and they give you moral knowledge. And at the age of 12 in an Orthodox Jewish home, you become an adult. You become a, a male Female, you become a man or a woman, depending. At age 12, that's when you are responsible for your actions. And, and so Mary says, you know, I recall that time. It was very significant uh, in, in Jesus' life. Um, and she says, let me tell you a story, Luke. And Luke says, okay. And, and this is where we come with the story. We have the timeline where we're going to see in verse 39, it begins with this concept of Nazareth. We know how he got there. We've already seen that, right? And now we're going to see a very significant time in Jesus' life. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Uh, For those of you who are new, we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor and the other we tolerate. (laughs) So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew. Everyone say child. The word's going to change momentarily. The child grew. And became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The very first time in the New Testament we see the word grace used, right here. And the grace of God was upon him. The word grace means charis. We're going to see it again in the passage, but in a different way. His parents... Now, that's plural because Joseph is still on the scene. And by the way, this is the last passage of Scripture where we're going to see Joseph. He's going to fall uh, away. We don't know what happened to him. He probably died. Uh, Mary was a widower, more than likely. She was with him all by herself. But here's the last passage we see Joseph and the account of his life. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, and everyone say the boy. He, he, he leaves a child and comes back a man. Boy means young adult, male, man. The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sit, uh, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And some of the teachers were uh, Gamaliel and Nicodemus. These are folks we're going to see later in the story of Christ. They were young men then, and they were the leaders uh, of the, of the, the teachers uh, in the temple. Uh, these, were, these were priests in the temple, Nicodemus and Gamaliel, and they had different different opinions, but they were friends. And here they're contending, and Jesus is right there in the midst of them. Uh, They didn't find him. Verse 46, now so it was after three days, I'm sorry, verse 47, all and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? 
If my teen, uh, never mind, where was I? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And she's telling Luke, I, he said it and I didn't understand what he was saying. I do now, but I didn't then. And then she adds this in her account and Luke writes it down. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. That word subject is of great importance. Was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor. Everyone say favor. By the way, that's the second use of the word grace, charis. It's translated favor here. Uh, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us into all truth, that we would find your favor as we apply your word. We're grateful, God, for this picture of you, your life, and we ask that you would impart it to all of us. What, regardless of our age, there's something to be gleaned. And I pray, Lord, we'd be forever changed as we find ourselves obedient to you. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, relax, not too much. In this um, passage of scripture, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you before I get into um, kind of the direction I think God is, has put on my heart in relation to the passage we, we know the time frame. I've laid out how they, they, uh, they returned to Galilee to their own city in Nazareth. Um, but look at how it begins. It says, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord. One of the things that Mary wanted to instill in Luke, and I, I love this picture. Uh, this is Mary talking to Luke. It's actually Mary talking to Joseph. But I'm pretending that it's Mary talking to Luke. Uh, and Mary would be older. But you just see this conversation. I looked for a picture. I couldn't find it. But here she is recounting this story uh, to Luke and, and saying, let me, let me tell you about the one instance that I think is of significance that the Holy Spirit is inspiring me to give to you. And she lays this out and she says, uh, when, when we had performed all the things according to the law, you can't dismiss that because what is occurring between Jesus' birth and his age of 12 is, and we don't know this in our, in our world, this isn't something that comes natural to us uh, in accordance with, with our culture. But to the, to the Jew, um, they would impart, and it was the father's responsibility, it was the father's responsibility to import, import uh, moral knowledge into the lives of their children. And we have the disappearance of moral knowledge that we covered in previous passages. And this disappearance of moral knowledge is Dallas Willard, who's gone to be with the Lord. He wrote that book called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. And it really has wreaked havoc upon our culture as we've removed this concept of the commandments and, and moral absolutes in our teaching. Uh, but, but in the Jewish culture, and I, and I covered this, that what was fascinating about the Exodus, and they, they cover the, the, one of the three great feasts that you find in, um, in Deuteronomy 16.16 16, is that every male was required to go to the temple three times a year, and one was for uh, one of the festivals called Passover. Passover is, is the Seder meal. It's the longest-running family meal in world history. Uh, we, we have a, uh, a Passover every year. Uh, Pastor Marty's done it. A number of other folks have done it. And, and in this Passover meal, it's all these pictures of Christ, the Passover lamb. And it occurred when all of the, the, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And then God sends the plagues, 
And then the Egyptians, he says, let my people go. He says that to Pharaoh. Moses does. Pharaoh lets them go. All the Egyptians give their, their, much of their wealth to the Jews and they leave. And then Pharaoh realizes, I've lost all of my slave labor. We need to go and imprison them again. So they send the army out to chase them. And as they're chasing them, they get to the Red Sea. God parts it. Uh, the Israelites pass through. The Egyptian army follows. God closes the sea and drowns them all. They didn't have any weaponry. They didn't have anything. They were all slaves. They didn't know how to do any combat. God defends them and protects them. And now they get into what is called the wilderness, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and they wander for 40 years. And, and it's miraculous if you look at the story because for 40 years their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. Uh, it was miraculous because they were in the desert where there was no food and no water, and every day in the morning there would be manna waiting for them to eat, and it sustained them for 40 years. When they got tired of manna, God blew quail off course and brought them in, and they had quail meat coming out of their nostrils. They had so much to eat. Uh, water would, there would be no water. I mean, if you've been out there, it is desolate. Water would come out of the rocks, and, and we can go through the, the logistics of how to feed millions of people, tr- train loads every day just to bring enough supplies, and yet God managed to pull this off and keep them um, sustained for 40 years, wandering the wilderness. And, and I, I find that miraculous, and it's an absolutely tremendous story, but the thing that blows me away more than anything else, and this is what we covered, is that millions of Jews got along with each other without a police force or an army. And how did they do that? God downloaded through the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai with Moses a moral app that was instilled in all of the children. You don't steal from each other. You don't lie. You don't covet. You don't commit adultery. You don't murder. You honor God. You have no other gods before him. You don't take his name in vain. And he lays all of these commandments out and they're instilled in the lives of all of the population. And for the very first time in world history, we have a representative form of government as God declared to him to appoint uh, uh Godly men who are not covetous and appoint them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Federal, state, county, local. And this government is established long before they had Saul as a king, long before they had David as a king. God even warned them, you don't want an oligarchy. You don't want elitists ruling you. They're going to mess with you. And, and, and Samuel said, I know that. And he said, look, they're not angry with you. They're angry with me. Give them what they want. I'll still work through that form of government. But this is the government that I've established. Accountability to me and accountability to each other. The first five commandments are our relationship with God. Second five commandments are our relationship with each other. You have that moral knowledge. You can dwell without a military or a police force because people can be trusted. That to me is an amazing picture that we have forgotten. And as we abandon God and we abandon moral knowledge, we think the only thing our kids need if they're going to succeed is everybody has to, we have to get them all an Apple laptop. Well, that's really worked well. This digital age has really, it's increased our use of pornography, but I don't know if it's really made us smarter. And it's caused us to be dependent on Google, which is now really pleasant. Again, I, I really, I worked. I thought that would be funnier. I always try to see if that works, but it just didn't. And so this moral knowledge being downloaded, you see this miraculous picture. So when it says, so when they had performed all the things according to the law, what, Mar- uh, what Mary's telling Luke is, we front-loaded that boy. We imparted this into his life. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. We did that, Luke. We did that with our boy. He, he, would, he, he would touch the mezuzah every time he left our house. The mezuzah, yes. 
It's the commandments, the Ten Commandments. You go to Israel, when we go in May, you'll see it. Every hotel room, every house, you walk in and there's a mezuzah. Those are the Ten Commandments. Don't you forget those. That is the moral download given by God that allows us to dwell together. This law has not only established Israel, but then went through Europe and came across the Atlantic. And we have the Judeo-Christian ethic. And we have this law that has governed a constitutional republic. And as John Adams, who loved the law, John Adams said, a republic will only survive with a moral people. You can only have self-government when, you're, when yourself is governed by God. Then you can dwell with each other. And this is the concept of this downloading of moral law. And she said, we did that, Luke. We returned to Galilee, to their own city in Nazareth, and the child grew, and children grow. You just feed them, and they grow. This has no, no, no description. The word grew in, in the Greek just means that's what children do. You feed them, and they get hungrier. They're just empty holes, and they drain you of everything you have. They're like locusts. They just bleach the bones and they leave you nothing. Where was I? The child grew and became strong while the parents became emaciated and weak. The child grew and became strong, but this is the picture that Mary imparts to Luke. Not just physically, Luke, but in spirit. He was filled with wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. First time we hear the word grace, this favor of God was upon that boy. He was unlike any child the world has ever known. Even when Adam and Eve had children, they'd already had the sin nature, so Cain and Abel had instilled. There had never been a child on the face of the earth like this boy. He was remarkable. The favor of God was upon him. Load is written of me in the volume of the book. I've come to do thy will, O God. That's what Jesus said. He, he grew. And he was the embodiment of, of grace and truth. There was favor on him and he just walked in truth. He knew there was right and wrong, good and evil. He knew there was deception. He knew there was truth. And, and he, he grew. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Unlike any child in the face of the earth, he was a remarkable young child. I don't want to go into that, and I'm glad she didn't. Because had she gone into that, every, every kid from the age of three to 11 would, you know, if, if Mary had gone to describe him as a child, they, they would go, why can't you be like Jesus? And every child would grow up going, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. It's impossible to attain that. The reason why they left out the account of his life from three to 11 is real simple. His, his moral upbringing from the age of three to 11 was not his responsibility, it was his father's. Everything that needed to be said was said by Mary. Uh, we did all things according to the law of the Lord. We did all things. The responsibility that was instilled in us, and by the way, as parents, we are stewards of our children's lives. They're on loan to us by God. We have to give an accounting of their life when we go into glory. And you can't look at God and say, you know, the kids turned out bad because we had a really bad school system. God will say, where in my word did I tell you to put them there? Well, private school is too expensive. Why didn't you homeschool? Uh, I'm just, I, I wouldn't have been very good at that. And, and, and then God will ask you, why wasn't your public school better? Why didn't you participate? Well, it's void of moral knowledge. Why didn't you contend for that? 
That, that's what we are. We're, we're the ecclesia or the ecclesia according to the Catholic world. Our job is to be that in the community. Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you import moral, moral knowledge? Why didn't you allow the download to happen in your community? Why didn't you teach people right and wrong, good and evil? You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't covet. How is it that your children can grow up and think socialism is legitimate in the church when it violates two of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet. This is what God is saying to us. This is, we, we do all things according to the law of the Lord. Oh, man, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. I say man should boast. Man, I'm all about grace, not the law. No, 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 no. Jesus was all about grace and truth. Truth is the law. Truth is the law. We, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. Good works means obeying God's commandments. And, and, and if you struggle with this idea that grace and truth was upon him, his parents, as it says in verse 41, his parents, both Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. They brought Jesus with them when they went to the, to, to the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Passover feast. They went there for Purim. They went there all the time. They swept all the, the leaven out of the house. Uh, they, they did everything together. And you can imagine Jesus as he's going uh, to, to Passover, He's going with Joseph, and he's witnessing the Passover. As they're taking the Passover lamb, and they're slaughtering it. And he's thinking to myself, that's me. I've got a few years left, and that's going to happen to me. And and Jesus had written in, in the account in the gospel where he said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer and you've turned it into a a den of thieves and robbers as he began to turn over the tables of the money changers. He was angry. He fashioned out of cords a whip. He's just going to town. Where did he get that? When he was a young boy, he went with his father, probably Joseph, uh, for for Passover. And he gets there and his dad, who was impoverished, a poor carpenter who had had saved money and bought this sacrificial lamb on behalf of his, his family, comes to the temple to offer it, and, and the priest says, oh, that's not a, that's not a, a qualified lamb. You've you got to have one that's been approved by the, the temple you know, inspectors. And Joseph's saying, oh, what's wrong with it? Are you questioning the authority of the pr- temple priest? I'm sorry. And, and Joseph, in obedience to authority, walks over and gets in the line to get a new one. But he has to exchange the old one because he doesn't have any money. And as he goes to exchange it, they say, well, we'll exchange it, but, you know, we'll give you this much. That's that's one-fifth what I paid for it. It's one-fifth of what it's worth. Take it or leave it. The Passover is going to be gone. You're not going to have a sacrifice. Okay, I'll take it. And they give him money. And he goes to, to buy another one of the approved ones. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, we don't take that money. We only take temple money. Where, where do I get temple money? Over in that line. So he goes, gets in line with his son who's in tow. And he goes to exchange it. And they rip him off in the exchange rate. Now he's got one-eighth of what he had. He comes back and he's got to find more money to put it together and he goes to buy a lamb approved and he comes to find his own lamb in the pen. And Jesus is looking and just saying, this is not right. He would later just turn that place upside down in frustration. And here he is, every year, Joseph would bring his family and they would come for the feast of the Passover and according to Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year they'd come for all the the feasts. Jesus was in tow every time. But now it says when he was 12 years old, very important, he was 12 years old. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. But this time he's no longer going up as a child, he's going up as a young man. 
He's going up as a young man. And when they had finished the days as they returned, it says here, and it makes it very clear, the boy, the young man, the boy. It's a different word. It's not child anymore. It's a young man who is accountable and, uh, to the moral law. The moral knowledge that I've instilled in you, son, you are now to walk as an adult and you will be responsible for your actions from this point forward. And this boy, this young man, he lingered behind in Jerusalem. Oh, you know what? I'm making some decisions. I'm going to stay behind. And he stays behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it. They weren't bad parents. They weren't bad parents. The scripture says, but Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. It was so beyond their their understanding that somehow they trusted him so much that when you would travel up to Jerusalem, this 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, they would travel in groups to avoid the robbers on the road, and there was strength in numbers. And they would travel with their family members because every male adult three times a year, Deuteronomy 16, 16, had to go. So they'd travel as, as, a, as a group, and they'd all protect one another and protect their children, and they'd all hang out. And he'd go run with his cousins or he'd go run with you know, his other brothers and sisters and he'd go hang out with them. And Jesus was so trusted, he was a boy where he just, he never worried about him. This is a kid that never did anything wrong. And the last thing on their mind was if we give him freedom to go off somewhere, he's gonna go you know, smoke a cigarette in the, behind the bushes or go do something bad. That's not Jesus. They, they had no concern over this boy, none. And, and so we had this, I remember when I was young, I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, my parents, they didn't care, I, I didn't stay out all night. And that wasn't because I was like Jesus, because I was the youngest of four, and by the time I came along, they were tired of raising kids. It's like, I don't care where he is. And, and yet Jesus, the complete opposite, they completely trusted him. And, and they go through the course of it, and they turn to each other, do you know where he is? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? And Joseph, like any father, is like, I thought you were, I, uh, no, I didn't. I remember when I was a youth pastor in San Jose and took a group of kids up to Green Valley Lake, and we stopped at the base of the mountain, and we let the kids go in and shop at Walmart to get some needed things for the week of camp, and, and then we all got in the thing, and I had assistants that were counting all the kids to make sure that they were all counted for, and we get up to the, the mountain, uh, up, up to the campsite, and our rooms weren't ready yet, so the kids were playing around. I'm kind of, you know, just t- shepherding, taking an assessment of the kids. And one kid in particular, I just don't see him. And I go to the one who's overseeing, and I said, where's so-and-so? Oh, I, I, you did take account. Oh, I did take account. Uh, how'd you take account? Well, I, I checked with uh, the person he's been hanging out with. They said that they saw him. I'm sorry, what? Did you see him physically get on the bus? Well, no, I didn't. Come to find out, we left him at Walmart. Drove down the mountain, picked the kid up. He's playing video games. He's scared. That family doesn't go to church anymore. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is this idea that they're, they're just, I, I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him. And, and they're looking around for him. And they go to check with all the relatives. Have you seen uh, Joseph would be the translation. Of Have you seen Joseph? No, I haven't seen him. Have you seen? No, I haven't seen him. No, 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 I haven't seen him. And, and as they're looking around, they can't find him. We don't know how many days they were looking or how long they were looking. But we do know this. That, that when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. They, maybe we left him in the city, so they go back to Jerusalem. And so it was after the three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. I had to steal this image. That's why they have it crossed out. I didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> and, and he's sitting in this group of teachers, and here he is as a young man. Listen, he's a young man. He's been bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah. Anyone ever heard the name Bar Jonah? 
or Barabbas. It means son of Rabbas, son of the father, son of Abba, Bar Abba, son of the father. Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. McCoy, Mac in Scottish means son of, son of Coy. I don't know what kind of name Coy is, but I'm the son of him. (laughs) Bar Mitzvah means son of the law, son of the word, son of the downloaded moral knowledge. You are now a son responsible to God by this downloaded moral knowledge. And here he is having been bar mitzvahed, son of knowledge, and he's sitting with the teachers that instructed him. There you have Nicodemus, Gamaliel. They both have different views. They're contending. Jesus is answering their questions. These, and they called them doctors in the scripture, this, this idea they have a PhD in theology. And they're going back and forth over the law and discussing these things. They have a jurisprudence. And he's, he's there in the temple, and they found him sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, at this moment, she runs up to him, and she says to him, son, why have you done this to us? Her heart's just racing. What? We had three days, and we, were, and we went and, did, and we came back here. And why have you done this to us? And Mary's recounting this to Luke. This is what I asked him. I, I just, it was, I'm just a frantic mother. I lost the son of God. <laughs> I mean, this was a good kid. You don't want to lose a kid like this. The others, you're like, I don't know and don't care. Uh, that's not true. Completely. And, and she was frantic. And it's a, it's a mother's response. Why have you done this to us? And his response, and she says, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. <laughs> Mom, don't you know the scriptures? Be anxious in nothing but all prayer, things by prayer and supplication. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. But she said, we sought for you anxiously. And his response to her wasn't disrespectful. He said to them, why did you seek me? I went, I'm bar mitzvahed. Where else would I be? I'm the son of the law now. I'm the son of the moral commandment. Did you not know that I am now to be about my father's business? They didn't understand. She says, you know, Luke, I didn't understand what he was saying when he said it, but I do now. And, and this idea, the translation, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? The translation, it is necessary to be in the things of my father. That's a better translation. It is necessary for me to be in the things of my father. It is necessary for me to be in the things of my father. I remember when I had had a call into the ministry and I was married and Michelle was pregnant. Well, let's see. No, we had our first child and she was pregnant with our second child. And I had a career with uh, Unilever, largest consumer products company in America. I was a divisional manager and I hated my job. And I I ended up leaving there and I went to uh, AC Nielsen. They do the Nielsen ratings. And and I was hired to compile UPC data to show um, manufacturers how their products were moved at store level. And I'd sell to brokers and I was calling on all these brokers. And I hated it. And, and I had this burden to go into ministry, and I'd gotten a call from a mentor who had always seen ministry in my life. And when I'd gone through one of the darkest seasons of my life, this man had, you know, come in, and, and he said, I just see a call on your life. And, and I ended up saying, well, okay, how do I get into ministry? He says, well, you can come here, but, you know, 
it was the mid-90s and Fresno was going through a downturn in the economy and things were rough. And he said, you can come work at the church. I can give you 600 bucks a month and pay for half your health care. I'm like, my wife, my wife is seven and a half months pregnant. We're going to go from Redlands to Fresno in the summertime. People, people in Fresno in the summer go to hell to try to beat the heat. And, uh, and, and I, I knew God was calling us to do it. And I sat down with Michelle and she said, yeah. So I just cashed it all in. And I remember my dad called me. And he was upset. And he was in Priest Gulch, Colorado, back when they had those Korean War radio cell phone kind of things. And, and he's on this, one of the few cell phones on the planet. And he's trying to call me from Priest Gulch, Colorado as he's with my aunt and my uncle. And, and he says, What? I said, I'm going into the ministry. I'm leaving Nielsen. No. And he wasn't a Christian. He goes, no, 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 no. You, your family will go bankrupt. You're, 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 you're not a provider. You're not a, and the phone goes dead. I'm like, I didn't quite understand what he said. So I'm going. And I did. And he was, he was upset. And I, I couldn't relate to him similar to, to, and, and I, I mean, he wouldn't have understood any more than, and, and I'm no Jesus, but I, I did know there was a calling on my life. And I knew as, as a provider and a protector that I was doing the right thing and, and for, for my family, for, for the future, that this is what I'm to be about. This is my calling. I'm going to do this. I'm not supposed to sell goop in a bottle or UPC data. I, I'm to do this. And, and I tried to explain to my dad. He didn't understand. And, and, and this isn't a man that, that went to the temple. This isn't a man that went to church. I can, I can imagine, you know, for Mary not to quite grasp it. It's not a stretch. And, and, and here, she, in a sense, when she finds him, and, and he responds by just saying, it is necessary to be in the things of my father. And she didn't understand this. It's almost like he said, Mom, how can you not get this? I mean, John, you, you recounted for me. John leapt in the womb. Elizabeth testified of me. The angels spoke to you. I mean, mom, the shepherds. And the night when you, mom, the wise men, remember? Dad, the stories with the angel, and you got to, mom, they killed all the kids in my class. Simeon, Anna, you told me the story. You of all people, how is it you don't get this? That's what he's saying. But not the way I just said it. He was very sweet and polite. And he was about his father's business. He's, he's studying the Torah. This idea of a Torah. Torah is the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. It's the Levitical law. It's, it's everything that would be instilled in a, a young Jewish boy or girl's life, a Jewish religious law, it's called the Torah. There's two parts of the Torah, the written Torah and the oral Torah. You have the Mishnah, and, uh, and, and in the Torah, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have the Talmud. You have the Mishnah. One is an oral tradition. The other is commentary on those. And, and these are what the children study. This is what Jesus was doing. He was, he was having a conversation with these, these noted 
priests and rabbis, and they're stunned by it. And, 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 and you think to yourself, well, you know, why is this concept of 12 years of age and something that Mary would put forward, why is this so significant? Because 12 is when you become a son of the moral knowledge, and you're responsible for it. Kids want freedom, but they don't have any bearing. They want freedom to do what they want to do, but they don't have any idea what to do with it. God gives us this. And, and as parents, we bring them to church. We instruct them. We take them to Awanus. We educate them on the scriptures. We impart this knowledge to them. And in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox community, at the age of 12, some do 13 now in the Reformed community, but this is what they do. They do a bar mitzvah. They have to memorize these things. The children have to instill them. They learn the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. As they start to memorize these, these different passages of Scripture out of Exodus 13 and, and out of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 and Psalm 119. And as they, they, they touch the mezuzah every time they leave the house and as they go to the feast and they start to learn uh, about Purim and they start to learn about all these different aspects of the Day of Atonement and the Festival of Booze and all these things are instilled in them. And they become at 13, 12 years of age, they become a son or a daughter of the law. They're now ready to be citizens who can be protectors and providers and instill that in the next generation. They can create Western civilization that allows us to live in such a way that we're accountable to God in the first five commandments and accountable to each other in the second five. And we remove that and the society implodes. And the murder rate goes up and the divorce rate goes up and the, the teen pregnancy rate goes up and the drug addiction goes up and the sexually transmitted diseases go up and the test scores go down. Because we remove moral knowledge. But in this culture, they instill it. They pour this in. A nation that survives in a republic. Surrounded by enemies. F fascinating. Not just the, the young men. The women go through it too. These girls become women. Accountable to the law. Accountable to this moral knowledge. Accountable to society. Accountable to God and to each other. Instilled in them are these Ten Commandments. The same ones that sustained the Israelites through the Sinai Peninsula and the wilderness for 40 years without a police force and without a governing army. They knew how to treat each other right because they had a right relationship with God. Those are the two, two stations of the cross, vertical and horizontal. And then here you have the Hebrew rendition of those. These were the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. And in the passage of scripture, as you go through this, it says in verse 51 of Luke 2, it says, and they went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and with men. It's the present tense when it says increased. He, he was continually subject to them. Present tense, continually subject. And as a result of being continually subject to them, obeying them, 
You see, the Bible says in the commandments that we're to honor our mother and father. It's the only commandment that comes with a promise. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. Now, Jesus is the only teenager in the history of the world that actually did know more than his parents. Some of you kids are going, I don't know. We do. He actually did know more than his parents, and yet he went back and was continually subject to them. Continually subject to them. We're going to temple. Okay, mom. We're going up for Passover. Okay, mom. We're going up for the Feast of, of Booze. Okay, mom. Okay, dad. Touch the Mishnah. Yes, mom. Did you recite the, the Shema? Yes, mom. What are the commandments? Recite them for me. Yes, mom. Did you memorize Psalm 119? I got it down. Do you have Deuteronomy? Yes. Do you have Exodus 13? Yes, mom. Yes, dad. They'd sit down and they'd have this conversation at the table and they would train them. Yeah, a table, that's where you have dinner together as a family. I know we don't do that much, but that's, that's what they do. I, if we were to take a poll of the room and ask you to recite 10 of the, the 10 commandments, I don't think that, that, uh, that maybe 15% of the room could recite them. We just spent 52 weeks memorizing scripture. And again, if we were to take a test, I don't know that 10% would pass. And these are, these, are, these are adults accountable to the moral law of God. And we're to instill it in the next generation. We want to complain about the circumstances of things, but this has to come together. You see, I talked to a branch manager in town of a bank. A curious. And I said, who are the richest people in Newberry Park? He said, I can't tell you their names. I said, no, 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 I don't want to know names. I just want to know if there's a group of people who are the richest. He goes, oh, yeah, without question. Who are they? The Mormons? And, and this branch manager is a Christian. I said, how's that? He said, well, they, they faithfully put aside money for savings. And they, they faithfully tithe. And, and they've got unbelievable amounts of money and they don't take out credit cards or debt and if they do they always pay them off after the 30 day grace period wow really yeah yeah they're the ones that we have most of our savings with these are the Mormons now there's Mormons present in the room and I I don't say this to to be dismissive or, or to upset anyone but Mormons would testify to this idea that you, you have what we call justification and sanctification. And, and Mormons don't hold the same Christ, Christology, how we view Christ, in what we call the Orthodox evangelical community. Their view of Christ is different than our view of Christ. They, we, we both believe in Christ, but we have different pictures of who he is. They adhere to the law, and they follow the law, and they're commanded to honor the law, and they do. And I remember talking with a group of Mormons and I said, you guys, you guys got it down. You got this sanctification down. I mean, you, you honor the law, you tithe, your people uh, you know, put in work hours, you, you, you do the first fruits, you, you educate your children. Your Sunday school classes take all day. You guys go to the Sabbath all day, you instruct, you train them. Even your scouting is instilled to put in moral knowledge to your children. 
You guys are remarkable in that capacity. The Orthodox Evangelical Church, we, we love the term justification. That's our favorite. You know, it's, hey man, it's all about grace. And it is. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will forgive you. Amen. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Amen. And grace is our get out of hell free card. And we're like, hey, I got grace. And, and we think grace is to allow us to get closer to sin. And God's like, no, I gave you grace so you can back up. Yeah, man, it's not about the law. Why do you talk about tithing? Why do you talk about obeying commandments? Why do you talk about instilling 10 commandments? Why do you talk about memorization? That's boring, man. We're saved by grace. Just talk about grace. We're saved by grace. We are saved by grace. But Jesus was filled with grace and truth, as it says in John 1.17. Truth is the law. There's sanctification and justification. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. God forgives me past, present, and future. <laughs> now, Mormons believe that you, you have to honor the law in order to be saved. We, we, we obey the law because we are saved. Two different approaches. And this sanctification and justification, we've got justification down, but the Mormons have sanctification down. Sanctification is setting yourself apart, moral knowledge, downloading, instilling in your children, and establishing a culture where you participate in every area to stand for these truths that when you shake somebody's hand, you can take their word for it. And when it says continually subject to his parents... And the commandment says, honor your mother and father. He was continually subject to two flawed parents. And he was without sin. So for all the young people in the room, you don't know my parents. Well, you're not God. Jesus was. And he still obeyed flawed parents. And was continually subject to them. And you know what? His father was a carpenter, probably died early, but he, he went into that workshop. Son, we don't cut corners. We don't give the customer any, anything less than they paid for. You don't cheat them. You don't lie to them. You don't cut corners. You don't, you don't skip on your taxes. You make sure you're tithing. You make sure you're doing these things. And, and I had one person after the service, and bless, bless their heart, they they were just concerned that I was, I was somehow equating the, the two faiths and, and dismissing ours. I said, no, 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 you don't understand my illustration. Two plus two is? Does that apply if you believe in Christ or you don't? Whether you're a pagan or a believer, two plus two is still four. And it works in mathematics for pagan children and Children of faith. The law brings favor. Grace gets us to that understanding, but then when we obey it, it brings favor. You do these things, your bank accounts will be full. The, the, the borrower is a slave to the lender, but the reverse is true. If you, if you tithe, you'll understand the first fruit. You'll understand this concept of, of putting God before everything else. If you instill your children this memorization of scripture and start to apply these things, and, and, and if, you're being put on, if you're being put on trial for being a Christian, could your children testify on your behalf? And the amazing thing is, he was continually subject. And being continually subject, he learned the trade and his work ethic 
matched bar mitzvah, the son of the law, the son of moral responsibility. This is how you live life. Honest days work, honest days pay. Your yes is yes, your no is no. It's that simple. You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat. You don't commit adultery. You honor your mother and father. You don't murder. Murder, I've never murdered. Jesus says, you've heard that said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you, if you say to your brother, raka or fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. You can murder with your words. You don't need a gun to kill somebody. You're ugly, you're stupid, I hate you, I wish you were never born, I wish I was never your parent. You don't need a gun to kill that child. You've done perfect. Watch your mouth. This is moral responsibility. You're an adult now. He was continually subject the Orthodox community, if you ever go to the Western Wall, and we'll do this in May, and you get there, you, you, you see this thing wrapped around the arm. And I saw this on the airplane as they were going over there, genuflecting on the Shabbat. And they're, they're doing their prayers, uh, and they're, they're wrapping their arm, and they've got this method to wrap it. And they've got this box, and then they put this thing on their head, and there's this box hanging in the, in the middle of their head. And you're looking at it going, this is really bizarre what's going on here. And, and yet you find the significance of it here in the passage because it says when he was 12. Everyone who's 12 years of age would go through this. And it was a, the, the box that's hanging on the arm and the one in the frontlets is called the tefillin. It's a set of small black leather boxes and they contain scrolls and parchments inscribed with verses from the Torah. And there's four sets of verses. Two are in the, the box on the forehead and two are in the box on the arm. And the first one is out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Uh, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts, the, mis- uh, the misbah, or the, yeah, yeah, on the doorpost. And on your gates, you go into a, the, a gate on a house, you'll see it. And then the other set of scriptures in the box that is contained with it is Deuteronomy 11. It shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil, and I will send grass in your field and in your livestock so that you may eat and be filled. Take heed. Uh, to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you. You do this, you're gonna flourish. You do this, you're gonna be in trouble. Every kid learns this. It's, it's right there in the frontlets. The other set, two sets of scriptures that are in the scrolls found in the arm, Exodus 13. Then the Lord God spoke to Moses saying, consecrate, set apart, sanctify yourselves to me, the firstborn. Whoever opens a womb, uh, both man and beast is mine tithing. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of, of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten, and on this day you're going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord, and leavened bread shall be eaten seven days. He goes through this and he says, 
Um, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. And with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You abandon that truth, you'll be in bondage. The law are the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraint towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Give your kids the opportunity to flourish. Otherwise, just abandon Abandon them and let them do as they please and they're going to end up absolutely saturated in front of that window into hell in the corner of your living room playing the idiot box. Impart to them. And then finally the last scroll is the last portion of Exodus 13 and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart the Lord uh, the, the firstborn that opened the womb both male, female, an animal shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And he goes through this and he says, it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come saying, what is this that you shall say to him by strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn. He says, therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb but all firstborn of my sons I redeem and it shall be a sign on your hand and on your frontlets between your eyes by the strength of the hand of the Lord that God brought us out of Egypt. He brought us out of bondage. He set us free. He gave us a nation that flourished because we front-loaded his moral knowledge and all of the children, when they became sons of the law, they are now moral, responsible agents to live that way and Jesus was 12. Mom, why didn't you get this? And Mary says, you know what, Luke? It didn't make sense at the time. But now when I look back on it, that boy, the minute we left that temple, was continually subject to us. He was the most amazing young man. And he increased every day in wisdom and in stature. But the one thing I can declare is that the favor of God was upon him. Again, that word charis. Favor. When you obey God, he blesses you. Proverbs 3, 1 through 6, I'm almost finished. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And you know what? My mom and dad, I grew in favor with them. They didn't like what I did, but they, like Mary, came along later and said, something's happened in your life. I, they're not alive today and, and they would be shocked to think that I'm a mayor of a city like this. They certainly were shocked that, that somebody had the, the chutzpah to ordain me. I don't know what, when it happened that people wanted to listen to anything I had to say. But I knew the day that God said, I want you to go deeper. And this idea of Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. 
the word in the Greek for increase means to blaze a trail, pound a piece of steel so that you can stretch out its form and its length. You pioneer. You take this young life and you mold it and shape it in the moral knowledge of God and they'll change the world. They'll increase. They won't be cast aside. They won't be shoveled aside. There'll be significant children that'll bring inventions into the world. I sat with just an amazing young girl named Bella, 4.6 GPA at Newberry Park High School. And I looked at her and I said, Bella, if I knew at 17 what I know at 54, I would have done exactly what you are doing. I am so impressed by you. When other kids are out watching and playing video games, you are disciplining and front-loading your life, and you are, you are putting restraints on evil in order to pursue excellence. You're going to make a difference. You're going to increase in this world. God's going to use you in a profound way. Now, granted, we didn't see eye to eye on everything, but what a remarkable young lady. And to see how God was doing this in her life, this is such a picture to me. And I'll just conclude with these two verses. This is Psalm 5. And this is, uh, this is David's psalm. And he just clearly says, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. And you will surround them as with a shield. And I just say this to the parents. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And when I say that to parents, I mean parents who are going to be parents. You young folks. You know, I don't want to honor my mother and father. They're awful. You know what? You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world. I agree. And I have no doubt you probably got some rotten parents and some of you are just making excuses but you can pick what kind of parent you're going to be and Jesus was filled with grace and truth and the beauty of grace is God forgets what is behind so we can strive for what is ahead you have a new father you are now a moral agent responsible to the law and I'm now declaring you an adult if you're over the age of 12 congratulations and you now get to apply the law and increase in favor with both God and man Because you are living by this moral knowledge, this law, and you are now a son or a daughter of the law, and God's hand is upon you, and you will increase, and you will change the world, and you will make a a divine, significant impact on the world ahead of you. And you don't have to worry what's behind you. We can all come from a train wreck behind us, but the Apostle Paul says, I strive for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Today, God brought you here to give you that understanding that you have been justified just as if you'd never sinned and you have a whole future awaiting you to be sanctified, set apart for his glory by applying that law to the rest of your life. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't murder with your words. Be honest, be truthful, honor God, live with man. Apply these things, put them in your head and in your heart. And watch what God will do. You will be those young men and women that will change the world. And for us that are passing through the python, let's finish well. 
this community needs a moral download. And God has now declared that we are to be about our Father's business. In Jesus' name, amen.